The Anarchist's Workbench by Christopher Schwarz Published by Lost Art Press This recording is by Ray Defterius and is not affiliated or endorsed by Lost Art Press in any manner. Any errors or omissions are purely the fault of the narrator, as is any general bungling of pronunciation of names. Chapter 14 Assembly and Vices Getting the eight joints in the workbench's base to fit together is one thing. Adding four more joints so the bench top and base top together nicely requires careful layout, accurate mortising, and if you aren't careful, straining your body like you just ate six cheese pizzas. Each leg weighs about 20 pounds and can easily wedge fast into its mortise as you fit the joint. Remember, don't drive the legs in with the mallet or a sledge. As a timber framer once said, you should be able to sink a tenon using your hat. The real strength in the joints come from the mechanical lock of the drawbore pegs. After I built a few benches this way, I understood why many people skip this step, joining the base to the bench top with fasteners or loose dowels instead. It is, however, worth the effort to do it the hard way. Drawboring the base into the bench top adds a layer of solidity you can feel as you work. Lay out the mortises. With the bench base dry assembled and upside down on the bench top, place the tenons on the legs where they need to go on the bench top. You don't have to be persnickety yet. Trace the locations of the tenons on the bench top with a pencil. Now shift the base to the side. Place a layer of masking tape over your pencil lines, making sure you have at least a quarter of an inch of tape outside your pencil lines. Now comes the fussy part. You're going to put the base in its final position, trace around the tenons with a knife edge, slicing through the tape. Then you'll peel away the interior section of tape and know the exact boundaries of your mortises. This is a common trick when dovetailing, all thanks to Mike Pekovich for sharing it with the world. It works for lots of other joints too. Place the base in position and centre it on the bench top, left to right. The front legs and the front edge of the bench top should be in the same plane. Now check your work with the square and tape measure. Are the legs perfectly perpendicular to the bench top? If not, Add some clamps to the base to pull the legs into position. Are the legs the same distance apart at the floor as they are at the bench top? If not, you can use a spreader clamp or regular bar clamp to pull the legs into position. In extreme cases, I'll clamp a block between the legs that's equal to the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder length of the stretcher. This pulls the legs parallel to their neighbours. To mark the joints, remove the cutter from a block plane. Use a corner of the blade like a knife to trace the shape of the tenons on the tape. The wide, flat back and lack of a handle make it an ideal tool for the job. A stroke or two should slice through the tape. Then, remove the base from the bench top. Peel away the tape that was touching the tenons. Now, you have your target. Drill out the mortises. I drill out the majority of the waste with an auger then remove the remainder with the heavy chisel. 
The hard part of this job is keeping your chisel on track as you chop and pair the mortise walls. I always build a one-time use jig that helps keep my auger bit dead perpendicular to the bench top. This makes the chisel work easier and it helps keep me in the lines. The jig is four pieces of plywood screwed together. See the photo above. There aren't any critical dimensions except for the height of the walls of the jig. That dimension depends on the length of your auger bit. You want to make the walls tall enough to help guide the auger bit, but not so tall that the drill's chuck hits them. Chuck your auger in the drill and measure how much of the bit extends, from the bit's cutting flutes to the jaws of the chuck. With my bit, that measurement is 6 inches. I want to drill about 3 and deep into the bench top. The extra 1 8 gives me room for any excess glue or bits of wood at the bottom of the mortise. So I rip my jig's walls to be 2 and 7 eighths wide. That means as soon as the jaws of the drill line up with the walls, I can stop drilling. It's not a depth stop, more of a depth suggestion, a depth thought, a depth opinion. But I need to work on that joke. Once you make the jig, it will become obvious how to use it. The two 90 degree inside corners are ideal for drilling our corners of the mortises. Place the jig so the walls just cover the masking tape. Clamp the jig down, drill a hole. You can use other part of the jig's walls to drill out sections of the mortises that don't have to be perfectly perpendicular. Oh hey, if you're an engineer, you can stop writing that note to me about how to improve my jig. Yes, I could build it so that there are four inside corners that exactly match the size of the mortise. But this jig took me three minutes to make and required no persnickety measuring. But do what you need to do to make yourself happy. One word of advice about using the jig. Don't run your drill at full speed. A fast moving auger will throw around chips with a lot of force. The flying hot waste. Hmm, not a bad band name will jerk the jig out of position. If you take it slowly, I pull the trigger about half speed, the chips won't dislodge the jig. And as you've probably figured out, this is my voice of shame typing this entire paragraph. Chisel the waste. The rest of the job is accurate, unrequited bashing. Removing waste from deep mortises is all about steering the chisel so it remains perpendicular to the bench top. This is all about where you are sitting and where you are looking. If you cannot see if the chisel's back is 90 degrees to the bench top, then you are beating it blind. Put another way, if you are looking at the front or back face of the chisel as you work, you are blind. You need to be to the side of your chisel. And if you are new to this operation, I would recommend a small tri-square back there to help guide your eye. Whacking the ends of mortises is obviously more work than peeling off the long walls of the mortises, which are parallel to the grain. But the tendency is to make the same error. Either the chisel is leaning too far forward or too far back. Fit the tenons. Even with careful layout and chopping, the tenons are likely to be too tight. My first strategy is to plane the faces of the legs to remove any machine marks. You have to do this anyway, and it will help fit the edge cheeks, because there is no shoulder. Then, for extra measure, 
I use a coarse set jack plane to remove a little more from the tenon's edge cheeks. This is usually about four strokes on each cheek. If you start your plane in the right place, the marks won't be noticeable. You also need to remove some wood from the face cheeks. The best way to do this is with the wide shoulder plane. But a chisel can do the job, as can several other tools. Take a few strokes from each cheek, then try the tenon in the mortise. As I said at the beginning of this chapter, these tenons should slide right in. No malleting. You might need to remove some waste in the mortise, especially if the tenon ends up sitting cockeyed in its mortise. Drawboard the tenons. The legs are drawboard into the benchtop in the same manner as you drawboard the stretchers. Each tenon receives two 5 8 pegs. The holes are 1 inch from the underside of the benchtop and are 1 and a quarter inches from the extents of the mortise. With the tenon removed, drill the 5 8 holes into the benchtop, passing through the open mortise. Bottom out the bit in the hole, mine went 6 inches into the benchtop. Place the tenon in its mortise. Mark the location of the holes using your auger bit. Remove the leg and shift the center point 1 8 towards the shoulder. Drill the 5 8 holes in the tenon using that new mark. Now put the tenon back into its mortise and check your work. If the offset between the two holes seems too heavy, I use a tapered reamer to open up the hole through the tenon. This creates a nice on-ramp through the tenon so the peg doesn't shatter when you drive it in. Make your pegs from 5 8 oak dowel, cut to 7 inches long. Taper one end of each peg like a pencil. You can taper up to about 2 inches of each peg's length without reducing the hold of the peg. Wax the pegs and disassemble the bench. Plane up the front edge of the bench top. Don't worry about the back edge. In fact, on my bench the legs aren't flush to the back edge of the bench top. True the ends of the bench top. At some point you will need to trim the ends of the bench top. Now is as good a time as any with the bench top upside down on saw benches. Lay out the lines using a framing square. I use a simple circular saw and make the cut in several passes. Otherwise, the saw blade will deflect. You'll finish the job by sawing from the top of the bench top. And if you own a standard circular saw, you'll still have waste to remove after cutting from both faces. I finished the job with a handsaw. Even if you're a good sawyer, you will have chunks of waste to remove. I chopped them away with the chisel. It's much like chopping out waste between dovetails. After chopping the waste to a thin ribbon, see photo on the previous page, I removed the last bit of waste with the white chisel, working from the ends towards the center of the bench top. Then I planed the ends flat, which sucked. At this point, it's best to install any vice hardware that requires holes, grooves, or mortises in the legs. It's easier when the parts are apart. Start the leg vice. Again, this is the point where I sympathize with people who simply bolt a quick release face vice to the bench top and call it a done bench. Leg vices require some precision boring and they require a mortise or some grooves for the hardware that makes the jaw cinch down hard. I do, however, think leg vices are worth the fuss. The first step is to make the jaw, sometimes called the chop. I make mine from maple, though yellow pine will do fine. I prefer maple for a reason I cannot put into words. To create the jaw, 
I laminate two lengths of eight quarter maple face to face. By the time the jaw is glued up and squared up, it's usually about three and a quarter inches thick. After the glue is dry, square up the jaw and follow the instructions for your bench hardware. I think it's a waste of ink to repeat the instructions here, so I'm going to explain only where I did things differently. The first place I go off the map is when attaching the crisscross mechanism to the leg and jaw. The instructions have you tap the wood, then use machine screws to attach the hardware. I use wood screws instead. Why? Softwoods such as yellow pine do not tap well. At all. I've tried it with denser yellow pines and cottonwoods. In all cases, the threads strip out after a short period of time, so I switched to number 14 wood screws. The other advantage to using screws is that you don't need to buy a tap and die. The other complication you will encounter when installing crisscross hardware is how the tenon for the front stretcher of the base intersects the groove for the hardware. You need to remove a little chunk of the tenon. It's not a big deal, and the path you need to take will be obvious once you get to this point. I marked out the chunk I needed to remove and cut it away with a handsaw. After the vice hardware is installed and running smoothly in the leg, remove it all and assemble the bench. Assembly I assemble the bench using liquid high glue because it has a long open time, it is easily cleaned with hot water even after it is set up, and it's reversible if things go wrong. I don't use bar clamps. And the glue is just extra insurance because the drawbar pegs provide all the pressure you need. Assemble the bench upside down on sawhorses. First glue the ends of the bench base together and knock the drawbar pegs in a little to hold things together. Don't drive any pegs home until the entire bench is together. After you get the end assemblies together, put the long stretches in place in one of the end assemblies. Knock in the pegs a little. Add the other end assembly and its pegs. Then put the assembled base into its mortises in the bench top. Add the drawbar pegs. Then knock everything home. Finish the work holding. After the bench is assembled, reattach the vice hardware. Now is a good time to install any lining to the jaw in the bench. You can use suede or cork rubber composite material sold at farm supply stores for making gaskets. Benchcrafted, which makes this leg vice, sells it under the brand name of Crubber. Sticking the liner to the jaw and bench top is simple work. Oh no, more laminating. Apply glue to the liner, tape it in position and then close the vise. I add a piece of plywood covered in wax paper between as a clamping core. This helps distribute the clamping pressure. Also, the wax paper prevents the glue from sticking where it shouldn't. But which glue? I prefer epoxy. It's expensive and it stinks, but I found it to be the most reliable in the long term. Once the vise is complete, you can install the planing stop. It's a piece of yellow pine that is 2.5 by 2.5 by 12. You'll have to laminate two layers of 2 bar material to make the stop. I recommend you laminate a backup piece because some people split their first planing stop. Plane up the stick until it fits in its mortise in the bench top and moves with sharp mallet blows. After I fit the wooden part of the stop, I install the iron hook. Mine was made by blacksmith Tom Latani. There are lots of ways to install these. 
Yes, how I do it. I drill a stepped hole. The diameters of the hole are determined by measuring the shaft of the hook at three places. The tip, the midpoint, and right under the hook. I make measurements from corner to corner with calipers. For this stop, the tip measured 0.35 of an inch. The middle was 0.56 and the top was 0.60. The shaft was 4 and a quarter long. So I first drilled a 5 eighths hole, 0.625 in diameter, 2 inches into the planing stop. Then I drilled a 3 eighths hole, as deep as the bit would go, about 4 and a half inches. When I slipped the planing stop shaft into the hole, must resist, the jokes are too easy. It stopped about two thirds of the way in. Then I tapped it into place the rest of the way. If things seem too loose, or the stop comes out at some point, slather it with epoxy and drive it back in. If the planing stop splits as you tap it in, make a new one and drill slightly wider holes. Hold fast holes. The third important work holding device in this workbench is the holdfast, with its array of holes in the bench top and the front leg. Holdfasts do things that bar clamps cannot. They hold your work and appliances in places that a bar clamp simply cannot reach. While most woodworkers understand our holdfasts function, they struggle with where to put the holes, or they flat out resist drilling the holes through their beautifully laminated bench top. I think it's like skydiving or pulling the bandage off an old wound. The anticipation is excruciating. The relief on the other side is eye-opening. Do your best not to hesitate, fret, or think too much. Because after you start using holdfasts, you wonder how you got along without them. I've studied lots of old benches and experimented with different hole patterns, gradually adding more holes until I saw a useful pattern emerge. I now use three rows of holdfasts that are staggered. The holes in each row are spaced apart on the reach of the holdfast. My holdfasts reach 8 inches, so the holes are on 15 inch centers. The rows are 7 inches away from the next row, also to accommodate the reach of the tool. This allows me to clamp battens or a doe's foot, a notched batten, just about anywhere on the bench. I can secure a moxon vise at the front edge of the bench top. I can also secure sticking boards, shooting boards, and bench hooks. I also have one additional holdfast hole behind the metal planing stop. This hole helps secure a wide planing stop across the width of the bench top. The hole layout in the construction drawings shows the pattern. I prefer 1 inch holdfast holes, which is a more traditional size to the modern 3 quarter inch standard. This requires a heavier holdfast with a shaft just under 1 inch in diameter. The closer the fit between the shaft and its hole, the better the holdfast will do its job. Also important, the hole must be perpendicular to the bench top, or the holdfast will not work in some instances. To ensure plumb holes, I make a jig similar to the one I use to drill out the mortises in the bench top. It helps guide the bit as you plunge through the bench top. Drill the holdfast holes until the lead screw pokes through the underside of the bench top. Stop drilling. After all the holes are drilled, come back and finish the holes by drilling through the underside of the bench top. This results in clean holes without a lot of grain ripping out under the bench top. Install the swing away seat. 
While your drill is handy, I recommend you install the swing away seat. Then after its bolts are in place on the front leg, you can drill the holes in the front leg for hold fasts. I had one of those swinging seats on my workbench for a long time. I used to find them at antique malls or through industrial salvage companies, and now Benchcrafted manufactures them. They are not just for resting. I sit on mine while I chop out dovetail waste. I do all my drawing and drafting there. I eat my lunch. I answer emails. I usually install the seat so it's about 17 and a half inches off the floor or about halfway up the leg. This is lower than the modern chair height of 20 inches, but it suits my work. Experiment with a stool and some books stacked on its seat to find your ideal height. After you drill the pilot holes for the seat's bolt, you can drill the one inch holes in the front leg for holdfasts. I like the top hole in the leg to be about eight inches from the bench top. This allows you to clamp a board to the front edge of the bench top in several positions. The lower two holes are on eight inch centers. This allows my holdfasts to store easily without hitting one another. And it gives me three good positions for when I use these holes as a support for a big door or a long tabletop clamped in the face vise. Drill the one inch holes with an auger bit until its lead screw emerges from the back of the leg. I couldn't get an auger bit back there to finish the job, so I used my tapered reamer to finish the job. It did a better job than simply blowing out the back of the leg with the auger. Flatten the bench top. Now is the time to flatten the bench top. It's best to wait until after you beat it up by adding the planing stop and the hold fast holes and gooped up the top with epoxy for installing the liners on the jaw. After 20 years of flattening bench tops, I now take a simpler approach than when I was younger. My approach back then was to treat the bench top like it was a giant board of wood and flatten it with the guidance of winding sticks and diagonal strokes with my hand planes. I still use those techniques when I flatten slab bench tops because they are indeed giant boards that twist, two corners high, two corners low, just like a little board. But a laminated top doesn't twist unless you've made a dog's dinner of your glue-ups. Each lamination tends to keep the others in check, so you can use a simple procedure when flattening a laminated bench top. I begin with traversing strokes with the jack plane, then I finish up using with the grain strokes with the jointer plane. That's it. I also don't try to get the bench top to a level of flatness that rivals a granite plate in a machinist tool room. I am for a bench top that won't distort my work. You have a surprising amount of leeway here. Small depressions in a bench top, say a few square inches across and a few thousandths of an inch deep, do little to mess up your work. The work lies over the concavities and doesn't bend into them while you plane. Small and large bumps can be a problem, but the jointer plane can mow those down when you flatten the bench top. Also important to consider. The most critical surface of the bench top is the front 8 inches to 12 inches. The back 40 get used very little. And when it does get used, you are usually planning up a large panel that will have some inherent stiffness and will have good support at the front of the bench top to help things stay under control. In other words, plane the bench top basically flat and use it. If it gives you trouble and you absolutely will know when things are bad, then deal with the problem. Here's how. Take your jack plane and set it pretty rank. 
to prevent spelching, bevel off the rear edge of the benchtop with about 4 or 5 strokes of the jack. Hold it about 45 degrees to the benchtop. Now take traversing strokes directly across the benchtop. These should be evenly spaced so that each shaving feathers off into the next one. Go all the way down the benchtop. Stop. Take an oily rag and wipe off any dust on the plain sole. Take your fingernail and clean out the dust collection between the iron and the back of the mouth. Do this after every round of shavings. Wax the sole with paraffin. Repeat. Repeat this process over and over until the bench top is consistent. At the end it should look like a wave pool, small waves peaking consistently down the bench top. Check the length of the bench top with the straight edge. A yardstick will do fine. Make sure there isn't a giant depression or hump along the length of the bench. If there is, fix the problem by working off the high spots. Now switch to a jointer plane. Set your iron fairly rank, yellow pine allows this. Work parallel to the grain. Overlap your strokes. Your arms are likely to be too short to plane all the way to the back side of the bench top while standing at the front. Go around to the back side to finish the job. Don't worry about a little tear out on the bench top. It's a working surface, like a butcher block, not a showpiece. When all the traversing marks disappear and you are getting full width, full length shavings along every part of the bench top, stop. Check the top with the straight edge and make sure it looks reasonably flat. You will see light under the straight edge. Our eyes can see a thousandth of an inch gap, so don't freak out.